Welcome to the podcast from Church of the Nazarene. Please subscribe to this podcast for the latest updates and new episodes. And you can also search for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. We also invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 on our YouTube channel or Facebook Live. You can also join us in person at 9 or 1030 for our English services or 1145 for our Spanish service. We also invite you to join Celebrate Recovery every Monday night at 630. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So there were three churches, uh, a Baptist church, a Methodist, and a Presbyterian, and they worked together to sponsor a community-wide revival. And after the revival had concluded, the three pastors got together, and they were discussing the results with one another. And the Methodist minister spoke up, and he said, listen, we, it worked out great for us. We gained four new families. And the Baptist pastor leaned forward, and he said, well, we did even better than that. We gained six new families. And the Presbyterian pastor got a big smile on his face, and he said, well, we did even better than that. We got rid of our ten biggest troublemakers. <laughs> Amen. Welcome to worship. We are the church, and by that I mean those people who have placed their faith in Jesus' finished work of redemption, right? To seek to become like Jesus and to ultimately do what Jesus did. Uh, my name is Billy, and I'm the pastor of discipleship here. If you're joining us, uh, Pastor Adrian was just up here. That's our lead pastor. Um, and so I have the privilege of, of bringing the word to you this morning, the final message in our series we've been in, Learning and Unlearning. Learning and Unlearning. If you've missed the last two sessions, and this is your first one, go back uh, and catch those to get caught up. But this series has been very much about the church as it responds to the culture, and the timeliness of this series relates to the cultural change as a result of the pandemic. And listen, uh, we are just like you. We're tired of talking about the pandemic, right? We want to we move into a new reality. Let's talk about something else. But the reality is, as God's people, we're living in a different world. And so we must, we must address our reality. And listen, of course, our message doesn't change. The Bible is the Bible. God's word is our truth. But it would be a mistake to ignore the cultural shifts that have taken place in a systemic way in the world around us. And Jesus' original disciples, if we read um, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we'll see that Jesus' original disciples were learning and unlearning almost every day as they followed him in the way, right? Uh, if we look deep, we can see that they were really unlearning a lot of things. Oftentimes, Jesus would say something like this, you've heard it said, you've learned it this way, but I say to you, and so Jesus was teaching them to unlearn so that they could relearn uh, again what it meant to live into this kingdom reality that Jesus was calling people into. And so they were learning uh, time and time again. And was that an easy process for them? Sometimes we can just be like, man, that must have been so easy because they were walking with Jesus. They were talking with Jesus. But if we look at it, it was absolutely not easy for them to get it. And so if we're honest and we ask the question, is it easy for us most of the time? Absolutely not. It's not easy for us to unlearn and to learn the way of the kingdom. But we must follow Jesus one step at a time, one day at a time. In an article wrote by an author named uh, Jessica Brody, she writes this about our current culture. She says, culture today often promotes a me-first mentality. We probably wouldn't disagree with that. From do what makes you happy, we tend to embrace individual freedom and decision-making that reflects our own interests over those of an organized group or church or government. 
right? So it's worked its way into the church, unfortunately, this me-first mentality. And, and the first teaching session we looked at two weeks ago at how God's Word is directing us to unlearn and learn to be compassionate in the way of Jesus in the times in which we find ourselves. What does it mean to have godly compassion as his people in the chaos all around us? And then last week, uh, Pastor Adrian unpacked as we looked at, at our polarized world and ultimately the call, the invitation, the exhortation of God to, if we belong to him, to be peacemakers, to be peacemakers. And being a peacemaker is not a passive pursuit. It requires action and intentionality on our part as we step out into our world each and every day. And so this is the final session, and we're going to begin in John 17. But I want, to, I want to say it first, as believers, even we can succumb to the temptation to scatter, right? To become spiritually distant from each other. And some of you all are feeling that in real ways. In a world that has been transformed, and I use that word intentionally, in a world that's been transformed by social distancing, right? That's like common... Uh, common language nowadays that we don't even think twice about it. And so in the face of that, God is calling us back to true fellowship, true life together. In an increasingly fractured world, we need unity in the church more than ever. The call to true community or fellowship, it is deep and personal, and it runs exactly opposite to the trend, to the flow of the culture on the other side of this pandemic that we find ourselves And so you can't enjoy the biblical community we're going to talk about, we're going to unpack today, unless and and until you're engaged deeply in God's family through the local church. And so thanks for being here today. Today, if you haven't figured out, we are talking about community, learning and unlearning community. And so we're going to open up in John 17, John 17 Um, We're going to just read a few verses. This is not what we're going to unpack completely, but this is going to give us a a running start on this idea of community and Jesus' heart, right? So that's what should matter most to us. What is on the heart of Jesus as it pertains to what we're talking about, learning and unlearning this idea of community? John 17, beginning in verse 20, and let me set the stage. Jesus is literally, he's hours before he's going to go to the cross to take on the sin of the world. And he's praying, he's kneeling before God the Father. Jesus is God in the flesh, right? God the Son. Uh, We worship the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is praying to his Father who is in heaven. And he's praying and he he prays for his disciples, those who who are following him in first century Palestine. But then he moves to pray for other believers. And this is where we pick up. John 17, verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his, his, his disciples that are with him at the time. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So if you're here today and you've put your faith in Jesus and, and you've confessed him as Lord of your life, then he is praying for you. Those who would believe in the message that would go out to the ends of the earth. He's praying for you and me. Believe in me through their message. Verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Do you hear that language, that oneness language, that togetherness? That's that's a communal idea. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now listen, he's talking about the church 
right? He's talking about those who would put their faith in Jesus. He's saying, Father, uh, I'm praying that they would be one, that they would come together in complete unity. And then let's look at the the last sentence of verse 23. He says, then, as this is happening, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus, moments before he goes to the cross, he's not praying for protection, for ease, for um, power for his disciples. He's praying that future believers would be brought together in unity for the sake of the world. And so perhaps we, we need to lean in this morning and see what God's word has to teach us and reteach us about this intimate type of community that God has created for us. Kerry Newoff, uh, he's a writer, author, blogger, pastor. Um, he says this, content that the church produced used to be a competitive advantage, but for the most part, it isn't anymore. What's deeply scarce right now are community and connection. People are more isolated than ever. That's playing out in the crisis in mental health, rising addictions, and the fractionalized tribes we've seen form in our culture. Authentic, loving, and genuine community are more scarce than they've ever been in our lifetimes. Every church should be running to fill that hole. Community means connecting people to each other in groups, in serving, in friendship, in relationships. And listen, this is what I want you to hear from this quote, the last line. He says, nobody should be able to out-community the local church. Nobody, no other organization, no other group should be able to out-community the local church. And I also want to read you um, something this morning that never gets shared, but in my process of sermon prep, early on in seminary, I was taught to create a sermon purpose statement, right? And so this is a statement in which everything that's going to get into the sermon has to go through. Maybe some of y'all remember back in school, you had to write a thesis statement, and your thesis statement kind of formed your outline and your paper. That's what this is. And some of you, when you hear thesis statement, you get a little nauseous, right? And that's okay. I'm with you. But this is what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a purpose statement that guides the content. If it doesn't fit, even if I think it's really good, it doesn't get into the sermon. Okay, but I want to share it with you today at the risk of you checking out early. I want to share it with you because I think it's going to help guide um, our thinking and, and our posture as we hear from the Lord this morning. And so I'm going to read you my sermon purpose statement today. I propose to challenge um, uh, the people, our people to look at the biblical understanding of community and fellowship that God has called and created his people for and then ask them to honestly examine their lived lives accordingly to the end that the hearer will repent and redeem the idea of biblical fellowship, biblical community and unity in Christ that those who follow Jesus are called and created to live in. So that's where we're going this morning. That is the purpose Jesus, uh, would, would you help us? Would you, would you give us eyes uh, to see and ears to hear and hearts uh, to respond in humility to your word this morning? We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. And so I want to look at four verses in 1 John. 1 John, uh, you know, it's right back there before Revelation towards the end of your book. Um, and, and so 1 John, 1 John, however you want to say it, we're going to look at the first four verses and then unpack, unpack exactly uh, what that means for us. Beginning in verse 1. Let's do this. Pastor Adrian had you stand last week. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. It's just four verses um, today. Get the blood flowing. Um, Verse 1 says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, 
This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated this morning. Let's take a few minutes to unpack that. First, John John begins this letter. He begins this discourse saying, uh, listen, what I'm writing about, what I'm testifying to, what I'm calling you to is not my matter of preference. It's not my matter of opinion. It's not some hearsay that I've heard from someone else. He said, what I'm writing is, is from which we've seen from the beginning, which we've heard, is th- something that I've seen that I've looked at, that I've heard, that I've touched. I walked with him, I talked with him, I ate with him, I slept with him. I I lived this life with God in the flesh, with this person, Jesus, that we proclaim to you. And so first John is saying, listen, I am an eyewitness and my words should be trusted. And then he continues in verse two. He says, the life appeared. I don't know if you know it, but there's 13 Fridays until Christmas. Some of you are excited. Some of you not so much. The life appeared, right? That's Jesus coming in the flesh. The life appeared, and we've seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So he says, listen, listen, what I'm testifying about is that the God of all creation has come close. That's what Christmas is about, right? The God of all creation has come close. He has stepped into his creation that he might set things back in motion so that they would be what they were always intended to be. The life has appeared. The life has been manifested. And as we look at John's accounts of his writings, we'll see that he presents Jesus in the flesh. This God who has stepped into his creation is humble and he's hungry and he's sad. And he makes himself as vulnerable as possible to that which he has created. Why? And that's what we're going to get to in the next few verses. Why? Because his goal, God's goal, was to have intimacy with you and with me. And you only get that kind of intimacy in relationship by coming close and risking hurt and pain and rejection. And that's exactly what God did. Verse 3, we proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that word that John uses there, fellowship, I want to unpack that for a minute. That word fellowship is, uh, it's a very special word in the Greek, and the word is koinonia. Can everybody say that? Koinonia. You don't have to try. Uh, Koinonia. Uh, There you go. Say it five times fast. But this word is far deeper than what we envision when we hear the word fellowship read there. All right, so, so for many of us, what comes to mind maybe first is like a fellowship, a potluck dinner. And hey, there's nothing wrong with dinner. I, I love potluck dinners. Uh, we had one uh, with some pastors and some leaders last night. It was great. But, but this idea of fellowship that John's talking about, he uses that word intentionally. Koinonia is a special word in the Greek. Okay? It's, it's not a fellowship potluck dinner in that, and maybe some of you will remember this. I, I'm old enough and grew up in the church that we used to have these dinners in the fellowship hall. Huh? Anybody? Amen? I mean, I don't know why it was called a hall because we were in a room. I'm not really sure how that 
term comes to me. Maybe it's old language, right? Banquet hall. Uh, but, but we used to eat in the fellowship hall. Literally, we called it that. Uh, but, but this is not what he's talking about when he's writing this word to the church. This word, it communicates a deeply intimate bond. Not just the bond we can have with God, as he talks about his fellowship is with the Father, but also the bond that we are called to have with one another. It's this deep sharing, this deep communion, this deep common bond, common sharing of life together. Life together. Because he knows, John knows that the goal of God from creation, from the first pages in your scripture, from the garden in Genesis until we see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven in Revelation, the goal of God is to dwell with his people in this kind of koinonia, this kind of fellowship and intimacy, and that we would ultimately dwell together in this type of fellowship as well. And so what does that look like? What comes to mind when we think of what does this look like with each other? Paint me a picture, Billy. Okay, I will. Um, So right before COVID, a year before, uh, this was 2019, if you've lost track of the years. 2019, I felt God kind of calling me. I have this passion to get some young guys together and and start. And this was just on my own initiative. It wasn't through the church, but uh, to start a men's group. And so I sent out some invites to some guys and about five or six of them responded and said, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's have a a group where we can share life, where we can be real and pray and and this kind of thing. And so, um, so we began to meet together. And some of them are in the room and will be in the room next service. Some of them aren't at this church. Um, but we got together and uh, we were gathered around a table in this really sacred place. Okay? It's a really sacred place called Cracker Barrel. And, and many of you understand what I'm talking about, right? So if you want true community, if you want this kind of fellowship to just kind of happen naturally, you go to the Cracker Barrel, right? Some of you have said amen. Amen? That's the first time some of you have ever said amen in church. So we're going to pray for you. But this is, we're gathered at Cracker Barrel. We're around the table. This is like six 30-year-old something dudes. And what begins to take place is confession and this vulnerability and intimacy and, and honesty. And it's filled with grace because we came together in the name of Christ. And literally dudes are crying at the table at Cracker Barrel while I'm trying to eat my pancakes. This is what comes to mind when I think of this koinonia, this deep fellowship, this deep sharing of life of like, man, this is, this is what it's about. There's grace at the table, literally. And I, I have to confess, though, because you might be like, man, like, that sounds awesome. But I got to confess that the reason we're doing this series is because COVID disrupted some things. And, and I got to I'll be honest, COVID canceled my men's group. We kind of disintegrated. You know, we, we had some young families. And so it, when COVID hit and everything was squirrely and the media and this and nobody knew, we kind of just, it kind of fizzled out, unfortunately. And so I want you to know today that we as pastors are learning and unlearning these things with you. Okay? So, so we're right there with you. But this, this is the kind of intimacy that John is talking about that he, he's calling God's people to have with one another and with God. And this may make you, some of you uncomfortable, but this word koinonia, it's not, a, it's not just fellowship like a potluck dinner. This word has such an intimate sense that it has also been translated as intercourse. Now that's some deep intimacy right there between a husband and wife. And, and so uh, uh, this is the depth of intimacy that this word invites us to. We also see it used in Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. 
And this is on the screen, and I may read a few verses past it, but maybe this verse will look really familiar to you um, if you're familiar with the book of Acts. It says, they devoted themselves. These are all the people who are placing their faith in this new Jewish Messiah, Jesus, claiming that he is king. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's the same word that John's using in our passage. They devoted themselves to koinonia, to deep communion with one another, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's the same word. I'm gonna keep reading. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they would also break bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the type of fellowship, this type of koinonia is what's happening in the early church that we're reading about in Acts. And it's what God is calling us back to in 2022 as his people. So we must learn and unlearn a few things this morning if we want to get to this area, this level of community, of fellowship that God really has created for us to live in so that we might be a witness um, to him. Uh, the, The first thing that we have to learn and unlearn is that this kind of fellowship does not happen during our Sunday morning worship gatherings. This kind of fellowship that we're invited to, that we're, we're created for, it doesn't happen in an hour on Sunday morning or 15 minutes over a decent cup of coffee in the lobby. Now listen, this is important. This gathering is important. We come together to celebrate baptism, to receive the sacraments of communion, to worship communally as the people of God and to open his word. But this kind of of koinonia, this kind of intimate fellowship and community doesn't happen in an hour on Sunday mornings. But you see in that passage we just read from Acts, it says that the, all, the believers, all the believers would meet together in the temple courts, right? So they, they saw importance in the large gathering. And then it said, but they would break bread in homes. And so there is importance in the large gathering and there is much importance in the small gatherings. That's why you'll hear us talk about joining a group. The second thing we must learn and unlearn is this, that thinking... And listen, maybe, maybe this isn't for you. Maybe you've been here or you're wrestling with this because you are in the room or maybe this is for someone who, who's listening online. But the second thing is this, that thinking you can live in Christ on your own is not possible. And the pandemic has created this disruption where it's like, you know, me and Jesus can do this thing. I, you know, I don't have to plug back in. I don't need to get into community. I don't have to risk anything. I, I, I can just do this thing with Jesus. We'll do my devotionals and, and, and me and him, we'll, we'll do this thing on our own. But I just wanna say that is a lie from the enemy of your soul. You cannot do this thing on your own. Listen, even, even people who we put out there as kind of radical, right, monks and nuns, they actually live in monasteries and convents. They live in perpetual community with one another. And they're seeking the heart of God from sunup to sundown and all through the night. Dallas Willard, author, scholar, theologian, he said, spiritual formation cannot, in the nature of the case, be a private thing because it is a matter of whole life transformation. You need to seek out others in your community who are pursuing the renovation of the heart. Listen, we cannot live and be who we are called to be in Christ 
outside of real community with other believers. It's just not a church cliche to say we need each other, that we, life together matters. It is a real reality. The third thing we must learn and unlearn about community to get to this place of fellowship that we're being called to here is uh, what we've come to know as digital community, this online community that we've all been brought into in a dramatic way over the last few years. Uh, What we've come to know as digital community can never, while there's a benefit and we can be thankful for some of the technologies, it can never truly accomplish this type of fellowship and communion that John is calling the people of God to receive. Kim McMurray, she writes this in an article titled Disconnected in a Connected World. And listen, this is for all generations because this, th- uh, this can apply to anyone. She says, ironically, as it appears that our screen time has gone up, our attention span and our ability to connect with others has gone down. How often do you find yourself sitting at a restaurant with friends, staring down at your phone instead of creating conversation? I'll be the first to admit that I'm guilty of pulling my phone out at the first sign of a break in conversation. What about in the workplace or at church? I could list so many other scenarios. We've conditioned ourselves to place more importance on our phones and social media than our real life connections with others. And that's why we're left feeling disconnected and isolated at the end of the day. And she says, she continues, she says, I don't know about you, but I want to cut down on my technology use reduce my online presence so I can increase my offline presence because at the end of the day, that's the presence that really counts. And listen, that's not a knock on technology. I'm a millennial. I I know how to use the things. But it's just a reality that we must realize as we learn and unlearn what this community that God's word calls us to uh, really means. That out there won't ever equate to what he's getting out, this deep, intimate community. And the fourth thing is this, that there is no ideal version. There's no ideal version of this real fellowship, this real community that exists out there somewhere that you gotta find, right? And sometimes this is the reason um, for church shopping. Maybe you've heard that. It's a weird, I don't, it's weird where we hop around from community to community because we're looking for that ideal one, that one that just fits the bill for us. And so that's where we get this because we've created this ideal version of community that doesn't really exist, but some of that me mentality works itself into our communities of faith. And so we're, we're set that we're going to find the one that is ideal. So I want to unpack that just a little bit further, this ideal versus reality. What we often idolize as community and fellowship versus the reality of what God is inviting us to and what it really looks like, even according to his word. And so, so John Mark Comer brings this up, and he, and he talks, uh, he's a pastor out in uh, Portland, and he says, you look at Acts chapter 2 and, and those verses we read in 42, and it's like, man, like, Man, they, they had everything in common. Like, they were selling their possessions so no one was in need. Like, oh, you need rent this month? Man, I'm going to go sell my record player. I don't, I don't know why I chose record player. But I, none of you, most of you all probably have no idea what a record player is. And, and he's like, I'm going to go sell this so that I can pay for your rent. Oh, man, man you, oh, your kids, oh, I got you. And so we look at that, and it's easy to be like, man. And some of you are, some of you are there, if you're honest. Some of you are like, we just need to go back to first century. We need to be like the first century church, right? So we idealize like, man, that is community in its realest form. 
But if you turn your, you turn your copies over a few more chapters to Acts chapter 5, there's this story of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Right, And some of y'all know where I'm going because uh, it says that people were selling their possessions, right? And so these people sold their property, but they held back a little bit of money for themselves. And you said, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is when they came to present the money to the disciples, to Peter, they said, this is what we received for the property. So they lied and they placed it at Peter's feet. And Peter says, why have you allowed Satan to so de- sift your heart, to so deceive your heart? And he looks at Ananias in the eyes and he says, the people who are going to bury your body are waiting at the door. And Ananias falls down dead. And then here comes his wife and she lies. She's dead. She's buried a few minutes later. And so it's like, do we really want to go back to the first century church? Some of y'all, we would, this church would be empty because it'd be like, you came in here, oh, you lied this week? Well, the people who are going to bury you are waiting at the door. So... Uh, do you want to pray now? Um, I like it. You know what I'm saying? We have this ideal version, and then there's the reality, okay? There's the reality that it wasn't like this was just the cookie-cutter thing, and maybe this will help unpack it a little bit more. Sometimes we idealize, well, Jesus had this community of 12 disciples. Man, that must have been intimate. Those guys must have just like, it must have been like worship and like friendship. And, uh, and if you read the copy of your scripture, you'll see that that wasn't really the case. And if any of you have watched any of the episodes of The Chosen, which is this uh, multi-season show about the life of Jesus, and it's not, you know, they take some liberty with it and get some background to people, um, but I love it. And so, um, so they have, they're painting this picture that these guys were real guys. They were humans. They weren't robots. They weren't some ideal people that Jesus called to follow him. There were some dynamics at play. And listen, if you read your copy of the text and you see that they're listing out all the names of Jesus' disciples and they list the 12 apostles, right? He had hundreds of disciples that followed him, but he had 12 real close guys that were his apostles. Um, you'll get two descriptions of two men. And I think, this is, I think it's intentional. One of them says that there was Matthew, the tax collector, and then it lists them, guess, and it'll say, and Simon, the zealot. Those are the two descriptions. You don't get Peter, the fisherman, you don't get all that in there. You know his call. You, I mean, you know what his calling, well, you know what he did because the text tells you. But when it's listing the disciples, you just get Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot. And if you don't have any background on first century Judea, tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were Jews who had sold out to their people. They had sold out to the enemy of Rome. Um, they were serving the enemy. And not only were they making a profit for the enemy, they were cheating their own people to fatten their own pockets. So they were, they were disgusting to those people, to true Jews, despised. And then you have Simon the Zealot. And if you don't know what a zealot is, the Chosen does a really good job of painting this picture. But, but we're not going to watch anything or, or go there. But a zealot, were literally, they were trained killers to kill in the name of the one true God, Yahweh. They served the purpose of God to keep his people pure and undefiled. So, so if a normal everyday Jew couldn't stand a tax collector, a zealot despised his life. And these guys were walking around and sleeping in the same tents and, and at the, they were having meals together. Zealots would literally be trained to move through the crowd, go up behind a Roman and slit his throat and move back into the crowd. They were trained killers. And so now Jesus has this tax collector who has cheated uh, the people and he has a zealot who was trained to kill people like Matthew. 
and they are on the same team. The ideal version of community versus the reality that it's a, a collection of difference. Right? You have Peter who's impulsive and loudmouth and he's off the cuff. And you have Judas who would betray Jesus who is calculating and always counting. You have James and John, the sons of thunder. And when Jesus gave them that name, that wasn't a compliment. He gave them that name because they wanted to call down lightning to destroy those people who they didn't agree with. And then you have Thomas who's reserved and questioning and pondering. These were the guys that Jesus did life with. They didn't all think the same. <laughs> they certainly didn't agree. Do you think they agreed on politics? I don't think so. Do you think they agreed on scripture? I don't think so. you think they agreed on the way that they had lived their lives? I don't think so. But the one thing that united them was this person named Jesus who had called them to leave those lives and to live into some new reality that was radically different. The third thing is this about ideal versus reality is that sometimes we think that there's a group of people out there that will think like us, that will act like us, that will vote like us, that will look like us versus what the church actually is. It's a community of fellowship, of difference. And by difference, um, I mean difference, that are called to be united as one in Jesus. Different genders, different generations, ethnicities, different economic groups, different family dynamics, different experience with the church, different occupations, different taste and style, food, leisure activities. That's what the church is in reality. And the fourth way that we have to confront this ideal versus reality if we're going to live into this type of community is that oftentimes we can come to it with this romantic ideal that, well, if we find that, then it's going to be peaceful and it's going to be easy and it's going to be clean and it's just going to make me happy. And if it doesn't fit that, nah, it must not be real. It must not be the real thing. When really, if we look at the example of Jesus and the scriptures, we'll see that the community that he's calling us to, this fellowship, is peace-seeking. We talked about that last week. It's peace-seeking, and it's frustrating, and it's inconvenient, and it's messy, but it is joy-producing. What did John say? He said, we write this to you to make our joy. It's a, it's a communal word. He said, to make our joy complete. That's the reality of this type of community. Bob Thune, the writer, says this. He says, uh, the objections to intentionally making the decision to be in community with others are generally the same. Busyness, crazy work or school schedules, family obligations. But could it be that what keeps us from community is not that we're too busy, but that we are simply not disciplined? And listen, I want, to be, I want to be gentle here because um, I understand that sometimes there's dynamics at play in our life. Sometimes we're in a season. Maybe it's, you say, well, I'm just in a season of life. And, and I understand that. I've been in a season of life in a few different seasons, even in my uh, young life or, or whatever you want to say. I understand that there are seasons where we just cannot commit as deeply to this community. But let me, let me encourage you that in those seasons... Man, isn't that when we need each other the most? And maybe sometimes our objection is we're just introverted. Listen, I'm with you. And I know that there's a, I know some people are extremely and some people are down here, so I want to be gentle. Uh, are you that introverted or do you like being left alone? Because I, I could go either way. 
I could sit in solitude and silence for a long time. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe that's your wiring. Maybe, maybe that's where you're at. But I promise you that there's going to be life. If, if, you'll, if you'll take a step of faith, that there'll be, there'll be life on the other side that may seem hard and it may seem messy and it may seem uncomfortable at first, but it is going to produce joy that you may have not experienced before. And maybe your excuse for avoiding this kind of community is hurt from past relationships when you've been in community with others. You've came close and you've risked and you've been rejected. And listen, I understand there can be pain in the past. Jesus wants to help you heal and deal with that pain. But there's been, there's been studies that have shown that, that relationship, relational pain is often healed in relationships. Isn't that fascinating? And Christ is foundational for this type of community, but being in fellowship with others is vital to our relational health. As we said at the beginning, God came close and he risked rejection so that he might have this type of communion with you and with me and so that ultimately we could have it with one another as his people, as his body. Author C.S. Lewis wrote this, and I believe it's on the screen here. Uh, yeah, there it is. It's, it's a long one, so if you can't see it very well, I'm going to read it. He said this on love and vulnerability. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So listen, this isn't an easy word. But usually when we're unlearning and learning things, it's usually not easy. In conversation with Pastor Jared Link, who is our campus pastor at East Rock, we were talking about the message this Sunday, and, and we came to this idea that, that we think the enemy has capitalized on the disruption that we've experienced, and it's worked its way into the life of believers. People are leaving the church, they're disconnecting, and some even deconstructing their faith. We've often made secondary issues matters of the utmost importance, and we've distanced ourselves from those whom we just simply disagree. We, the people of God, who are supposed to be one in Christ, united, right, brought together in complete unity. That was the prayer of Jesus. We've begun to often lean out and to turn away from one another, and in many instances, even from God himself. And the truth is, family, we'll never experience unity with other believers or with God himself if we're leaning out. Listen, the, the polarization points, we talked about some of that last week, but the polarization points, the differences that, that exist because we're humans, right? We have different backgrounds they, 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 in the body of Christ. They've been exacerbated by political and cultural turmoil in the last couple years. You don't have to raise your hand to agree. It's just true. Listen, we've had people leave our church because we required mass for too long. And we've had other people leave our church because we didn't require them long enough. And so this is a real reality that we have to, we have to get right, guys. Look at me, please. There's, there's an increasing fracturing of relationships and the attending demand for real community, right? 
real life-giving community and fellowship, koinonia, intimacy with each other. And it encompasses physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. It encompasses the whole realm because community is fundamental for our faith in Jesus and for our formation in becoming like Jesus. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line for today. It's on the screen. You won't experience the real riches of Christ if you're not in real community. I know, that, I know you might want to disagree, but it's, it's just true. You won't experience the real riches of Christ if you're not in real community. Or let me say it this way. I'll give you the positive. Only in real community will you experience the real riches of Christ. Bear with me. We're almost there. Peter Marty wrote this. He said, in social isolation, we've learned the truth of Frederick Buechner's words. You can survive on your own. You can grow strong on your own. You can prevail on your own. But you cannot become human on your own. Listen, and the truth of that, that statement is because to be fully human is to become increasingly like Jesus. He was the fully human one. He embodied what we were created to be, to be fully human. And without living in this true community, this true koinonia that that scripture calls us to, we're not walking in the way of Jesus. And his love is not made fully complete in us. We're missing out. And we cannot live and be who we're called to be in Christ outside of community with other believers. the worship team as they make their way up we're going to move to close to respond listen one conviction and I'm going to let you inside my heart and mind what drives me one one conviction that drives my thinking and my decision making in life is grounded in Jesus words of warning in Matthew 18 6 so if you want to learn a little bit more about Pastor Billy this is one thing that kind of drives me Jesus said if anyone causes one of these little ones One of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That was Jesus said. Jesus said that. Not a politician. That was Jesus. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better that they be drowned in the depths of the sea. Listen, it's vital, and I'm learning with you, it's vital that we repent of, uh, uh, repent of the ways we've got this wrong and we redeem and recommit to the biblical call to life together, to being unified in Christ Jesus with other believers. You know why? Because the souls of future generations hang in the balance. The souls of my children, of your children, of your grandchildren, and the generations that are coming up and just unaffiliating themselves with the church Hang in the balance. Because what, what did Jesus pray in John 17? Let's look at it in 23. He said, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. He says, it's vital we get this right because it's how the world, the generations to come are going to know that the good news is actually true. So we got to get it right, church. Thank God that his grace is present with us moment by moment. 
to get it right. Paul wrote to a church in Philippi in Philippians 2. He said, therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, listen to his language, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. What did John, what did John say? I write to you so that our joy will be complete. These guys didn't even hang out with each other. They just knew Jesus. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Not some things. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, church, in humility, value others. Value your brothers and sisters above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He humbled himself and he came low as low could get so that he could have this type of intimate fellowship with us. And listen, some of us, if we're soul level honest this morning, we're more concerned when we're gathered, when we come together for fellowship and community or what we've thought to be that type of fellowship. If we're soul level honest, we're more concerned about our preference. We're more concerned about our convenience. How will this serve me? What will I get out of this? How will they honor me? So let's be honest this morning. And listen, I get it, but God have mercy on us, church. Come on. The world is watching. The children are watching. It matters today. Would you, would you stand with me this morning? Lord, we need you to be our vision. We need the mind of Christ in our relationships with one another. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, he said, the more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely we will think of our fellowship and pray for it and hope for it. Is that, is that how you feel about fellowship with other believers? Listen, this is a reality in most of the world outside of Western America and Europe. So let's today, let's church redeem it and get it right here in Rockingham County and wherever you might live because souls hang in the balance. We must learn to receive this gift of real Christ unifying fellowship as an act of God's grace towards us, as his gift. And listen, we don't earn gifts. And then be overwhelmingly thankful to him. And so the call today the invitation today is to repent of all the self-centered ways we've engaged or even avoided this real way of doing fellowship of life together and redeem, recommit to living into this true and intimate fellowship that God has given to his people. Jesus, we need you. We need your mind. We need you to transform us as our culture has shifted so many things around us and even in our hearts, Lord, if we be still long enough to examine them, we'll see, God, that there's some things in there that just aren't, aren't right, God, that you want to realign, that you want to, uh, us to repent of, that you want to redeem, and that you want to transform in our lives. Help us, God. Have mercy on us. Help us to get this right so that future generations will see 
that we belong to you, that the good news is true and it's good, and that we're a community that have been united, although we're different, that we have been united in one thing, and that is you in the person of Jesus Christ. Be our vision now. Uh, Be our vision as we make this song our prayer. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening today. Go ahead and subscribe to our channel for updates and new episodes. And if you have any questions about our church or ministries, go ahead and email us at info at cotnaz.org.